then you assent that that means that let's see how did that work again i can't remember Hello, and welcome to Simply Faithful, a place for Christian conversations without the hype. We're here to discuss faith, life, and ministry with each other and with other interesting people. Our desire is to save you a place at the table with us. Here at Simply Faithful, we're hoping to begin conversations about Christianity that you can continue throughout your life. This week, dealing with doubt. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Simply Faithful. Super glad that you've joined us today. My name is Gray Ewing. I'm a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona at New Valley Church in downtown Phoenix. And this is Eric Tungis, pastor of Kishwaukee Community EPC near Rockford, Illinois. Today, we wanted to dive right into the deep end and talk about doubting in our faith. This seems to be an evergreen topic. It seems to be something that comes up in the life of the believer from time to time, periodically, sometimes long seasons and sometimes permanent seasons of doubt. I just heard recently, actually just yesterday, about another family that I am familiar with in the area who have said about their Christianity, they followed Jesus for many years, but now like ah, we just don't believe it anymore. And so we wanted to talk today about doubts, what place they have in the life of faith, and what are kind of the extreme markers of doubt and faith, and can they exist together? And I think at the beginning, what we would want to say is the tone, the tone that I want to set is the tone that seems to be indicated in Jude uh, near the end of the Bible, 25-ish verses, one chapter, and he has this beautiful section at the end where he does this benediction. And one of the things that he says we should be committed to, he says, keep yourself in the love of God, but also have mercy on those who doubt. And so the tone of our approach to doubt should be merciful. Is that, Eric, the tone that you think the church has always taken towards doubters? Obviously not. There are plenty of issues, both with how the church tries to answer people's doubts and in how it engages with those who doubt. But I suspect a lot of that's going to be because of some misconceptions about what doubt is and the different ways we use that term. So let's maybe pause that until we get there in the discussion. Yeah, correct. Doubt is not necessarily universally agreed upon as something that we all understand. And some people would call things doubt that I would not say are doubt. So let's do talk about some of those misconceptions. Uh, since you brought it up, Eric, what what's one of the misconceptions that you think people have about doubt? I think maybe the most basic one is really a misconception about faith, which is that it thinks that faith is a sort of willful belief in something despite all evidence, despite all reasoning, despite maybe really knowing that it's not true, which is the way I think a lot of people in our world almost think about faith. And as a consequence of that doubt is seen as any sort of questioning or wrestling with what's true or wondering about the things of God. And it's attacked as a sort of moral failure because it's thought that the moral posture you should have is one where you just say, I just believe it despite what my heart says, despite what my mind says. I'm just making this leap in the dark and committing myself to that. 
And I think that misconception lies behind a lot of people's initial uncertainty about the idea of doubt. Yeah, it's kind of an all or nothing approach. Like you have all faith or you have all doubt. And faith in particular is a sort of thing that precludes any seeking or questioning or wrestling in the process of doubt. Right. Another thing that we could add on to that is whether these things can exist at the same time in the life of a believer. People misquote scripture on this or have a different interpretation of scripture when it comes to things about doubt. For instance, they might think of James chapter one, which says that, you know, you should ask for things of God, but you should do so without doubting because the one who doubts is like a ship that's tossed on the seas and you shouldn't expect that you should get anything from the Lord, James says. Um, another one is is Mark. Jesus says anything is possible for those who believe. And so if you don't believe, then maybe some things aren't possible for you. And so we kind of have this a basic approach sometimes with scripture that doubting is something that can't exist in us or God won't have anything to do with us. I have some thoughts on why those scripture passages are there, but what would you say to somebody, Eric, that was saying, yeah, the scripture says I shouldn't doubt, I I should just believe. How would you counsel that person? Let me actually back up a little bit, because the first thing I think that you need to pry apart whenever you're talking to someone is what they even mean by the word doubt. So let me give you my taxonomy of doubt when I think about the different ways people use that word, because it can actually be a label for a a number of different things. One, it can be a label for intellectual uncertainty. So it can be the way of talking about just somebody who's like, I don't know if Christianity is true. I don't know whether it is right to believe that or not. Secondly, we can use doubt really is a label for what I would call spiritual discouragement, which is just to say that there are seasons of distance, seasons of feeling like God is not there or he's not hearing you, seasons where you sit and read his word and gather with his people and your heart is just sort of dull to it for a variety of reasons, often because of hard life circumstances, and people can use the word doubt to describe that feeling. Third, they can use doubt to describe really an experience of spiritual wrestling where you have some understanding that you are being called to do a certain thing or live a certain way or make a certain set of sacrifices and you're really wrestling with whether that is something that you're willing to do. Frankly, it's kind of a question of the will at that point and wrestling with God and his character as it relates to that. And then fourth, we use the word doubt sometimes to describe a settled mistrust that just says, it's not that I really have intellectual uncertainty, I'm just going to choose not to trust in God, even though in my heart, I know in some sense that he is who he says he is, but I'm going because of my anxiety or my fear or my pride to choose not to believe and trust him. And I think it's important to pry those apart because all of those can sometimes be sin. But really, only the fourth category is necessarily sinful. Right. So that fourth category is one where we would say the real question of the status of a believer versus an unbeliever would come into play, whereas those other ones can certainly exist for seasons in the life of the believer. So the fourth one, the the classic example of that is Israel after the Exodus, who is very much chastised by God for their doubts. But there, it's this situation where it's like, I brought these plagues before your eyes on Egypt and parted the Red Sea before you and brought manna from heaven for you and quail and water from a rock. Like you have visibly watched me as your God do all these things and you've seen me descend on the mountain and give my commandments. And yet still, you do not trust me. So that's the the one where it says that one is of necessity sort of sin. But the other ones, yeah, are all things that believers will experience to some extent at different points in their lives. 
And then you're really talking about something we might call unbelief, right? So it's not just doubt, like you're questioning something, but you've kind of moved to that place of, I really do not believe this anymore. Or I choose not to trust in it. Yeah. Choose not to trust, I think is the, the key label because the way that doubt relates to sin has to do with the question of, are we trusting God? It's not really a question about knowledge, but a question about faith in that proper sense of trust. And I want to talk about faith and what faith actually is in just a second. But just to return to those scripture passages for a second, too, and address a couple of things there. You know, in the James passage in particular, he says we should ask without doubting. You know, you shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord if you're if you're doubting. There he's clearly talking about, we're not saying that even though you doubt, that there aren't going to be spiritual consequences to your doubting. So when you doubt, there are consequences that that come from that. You shouldn't expect that you're just going to have this mountaintop experience all the time and that God's going to give you everything you want if you're not experiencing his full fellowship. And that really gets to the other thing as well, which is he really enables our faith. And so in the Mark passage that I talked about, where Jesus says, anything is possible for the one who believes, the context of that is a man whose son is demon-possessed, and he's saying, you need to believe, The man, and then the man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a prayer that Jesus answers right away by healing the boy and by showing him that he is powerful. And so it was an admission there from the man that he had uncertainty, he had doubt about who Jesus was, but he also had faith, but his faith was so weak but Christ came to him in his weak faith. And so Jesus tells us what kind of faith is needed for trusting in him. It's faith the size of a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, it says in scripture. And so it's not about the amount of faith that we have, because all faith is a gift from God anyway. It's about admitting where that faith is and asking for help. And that's a prayer that he loves to answer. I want to go back to that James passage and just name something else as well, because this often gets abused and twisted by certain people. When scripture talks about asking without doubt, what that means is asking without doubting God's power and ability to do what you're asking, not without doubting that he will of necessity do what you're asking. Right. Yeah. You get this sort of idea that creeps up in certain circles that what you're supposed to do is pray and just really believe that God will do the thing you're praying. And that if you are not absolutely convinced of that, that's actually come up for us dealing with Elizabeth's cancer, where the way we approach it is very much to say, we do not doubt that God is powerful and able to heal her, but we also recognize that he may very well choose not to heal her, and we will submit to him either way. And there's a significant number of people I've run across who seem to have the idea that that is actually sinfully doubting. Because what I'm supposed to say is that God will of necessity heal her, like I'm just going to force him sort of by my belief to do what I want. And that is very much not what's going on in scripture. What is important, though, is that we believe that he is able to do it and not question his power. 100%. Yeah, he is. he's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or even imagine, scripture says. Yet there is no doubt-o-meter or faith-o-meter where he is waiting for our faith to reach a certain level before he cashes out on his blessings for us. That's a foreign idea to scripture. Gray, maybe if I can ask you a question. I also think it's worth talking through those middle two categories I mentioned, which are spiritual discouragement and spiritual wrestling, and just describing a little bit more what appropriate and inappropriate ways that that can work itself out in our heart can can be. Because I think that those are especially important things to name, because they're maybe the most destructive, hard places where people wrestle with the idea of doubt. So do you want to maybe talk about one of those and then I can take the other? 
Yeah, sure. I think uh, I'll talk about the idea of, of discouragement and really wrap it into this idea of, of distance as well, because oftentimes that is the source of our discouragement is we feel a distance from God. We feel like he's not there. We feel like he doesn't care. And we should say as well that doubt doesn't always mean the lacking the trust that God exists. Sometimes it's lacking the trust that he is good. What do we do with that? Distance and doubt are not the same thing, but they often are called the same thing. And so how do we approach that? And I think scripturally, the best way to approach it is to dive deep into the Psalms. There are plenty of Psalms where David or other psalmists are wrestling with the nearness of God and wrestling with the goodness of God and wrestling even with the ethics and the morality of God. Oftentimes those Psalms are very, very honest. And I'm thinking of like Psalm 73, Psalm 42. These are ones where they they wrestle with, is God near? Does he care? And then oftentimes at the end of the psalm, there's kind of a hope that's given. It's like, but I put my trust in God, but I believe in you again. Sometimes, you know, we kind of read those psalms and we think, well, he's already putting a nice little bow on it. But that psalm is a complete experience of the believer that's wrestled out over a long period of time. So we have no idea how long David, for instance, stayed in this place of being far away from God and doubting his goodness. And yet he does return in faith to God's character in the end. And then I also want to name the idea of wrestling and doubt. On some level, all wrestling with the flesh, all temptation is really a struggle with doubt. It's a struggle with doubting whether God's commands are actually good, whether his ways are actually best for us, whether he intends what is best for us in his commandments. And obviously that becomes sinful doubt when we give in to temptation or choose to go our own way. But that experience of sometimes even just really viscerally, really almost to the point of shedding blood, wrestling with the flesh and with what God says and with whether we will believe him, is also an experience that is just normal in the life of believers at different seasons. I think that's really good, Eric. Let's do talk about faith in the life of a believer. And you've mentioned already kind of a false misconception of faith. So you mentioned that faith sometimes is referred to as this thing that we do without that wrestling, without that struggle. And sometimes also faith is described as a complete thing, like it's a leap into the unknown. So reason and certainty and all kinds of things like that have to do with facts. Faith has to do with not knowing the facts and jumping in blindly to something. And if you don't have that blindness, then it's not real faith. The problem with that, of course, being just to make sure that we name it, that in scripture, the main way that God answers doubts is with evidence. So when people are wrestling with doubting God, he points to his character. He points to his actions in the past that demonstrate that character. And he points to the promises that he's made in the present that are supposed to shape and give them trust in that character. Things like Jesus's cross and resurrection are meant to really stand as ways of saying, see this evidence of this thing and therefore have faith rather than have faith. And that is why you trust in this thing. That's really good, brother. So what is biblical faith then? How would you define what faith is? The simplest answer is that faith in scripture is the same thing as trust. That means more than maybe we appreciate, but at root, the question of faith is the question of the kid on the diving board with the dad out in the pool there to catch him, and the kid knows intellectually that his dad exists and is there, and probably even acknowledges that his dad is able to swim and catch him, but there's this question in his heart of, will I trust him enough to actually take this step? And it's that sort of leap rather than a leap with your eyes shut, not knowing whether there's someone there to catch you or not. Yeah, I agree, Eric. 
And there are a couple of things that come to my mind as well, just from a tradition standpoint. People have defined what faith is, and I think some of these things are, are helpful. So I, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think, what is faith, is a catechism answer. So in our tradition, we have a catechism, a question and answer format where we learn basic theology. And what is faith in Jesus Christ? In our catechism, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. So the two key R's there, which are, it's nice that it alliterates, receive and rest. That's what faith is. We receive Christ and we rest in him. It doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with some of the truths that are surrounding him, but at its core, we receive and rest in him. And so there's kind of this three-pronged way that people have talked about faith. Uh, Traditionally speaking, they say faith is knowledge, assent, and trust knowledge, assent, and trust. And assent meaning, because that's kind of a foreign word to us, assent means that we agree to something. We believe that it's true. So knowledge, assent, trust. And the classic example that's used is there's analogy with a chair. And so you see a chair across the room, you first look at it and you have some knowledge about it. You say, that is a chair. And you believe, in a sense, that that is a chair because you see it. That's your knowledge. So then the second part is that you assent. It means that that chair is for sitting in. You agree that the purpose of a chair is to sit in it. And then finally, there's trust, which is that you believe so much that that chair can hold your weight that you actually sit in it. And that is the final bit of faith. And so biblically speaking, faith is not just any one of those things. We're not just saying that faith is knowledge of God. As scripture says, the demons believe, they have knowledge, and they shudder. It's not just knowledge. It's not just a sin. Jesus did die, and he did die for sins, and I believe that he existed as a real person, and I believe that he died for me. It's also this, I believe that he died for me, and I'm trusting in him and nothing else. I'm sitting down into that chair. That's what biblical faith is in a nutshell. What else would you add to that, Eric? That definition, that understanding of faith, is actually incredibly helpful even beyond just a discussion of doubt, because it clarifies a lot of things that I think Christians otherwise miss. So one of the striking things in Scripture is that you have this language that's used at times of the obedience of faith. And the reason that exists is because trust, if faith is ultimately culminating in trust, even though knowledge and assent are the things that lead up to it, then that of necessity means that it's going to cause us to act. Now, that does not mean that we will perfectly act out of our faith at all times, but that's what James tries to highlight when he talks about faith without works being dead. He's not saying that, like, well, you've got faith and then you need to add good works because they're two opposed things. He's just saying that trust, good works are supposed to stem out of trust, and we fundamentally need to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, out of which our then obedience is supposed to flow. But if you trust Jesus... If you assent to and choose to then rest on Jesus, then of necessity, that has to alter how you live, because trusting him is going to entail trusting that his ways are best, trusting in his reign and submitting to it. And so faith, therefore, of necessity is something that starts to change our hearts and how we live. I want to shift now, Eric, and talk as we close today about what we should do with our doubts and kind of encompassing all the things that we just talked about. Some of us have wrestling going on. Some of us have doubts that are bordering on mistrust and unbelief. And some of us are feeling just this distance from God. And so um, what should we do if we are, if we're doubting? Uh, What are some of the practical things that we could dive into? 
The first thing that I'm going to suggest is, is maybe the hardest suggestion and understand that coming after it is going to be a set of more positive suggestions. But the first thing you need to do if you're in that place, I think, is to just pause and check your heart and ask what's going on and where in that spectrum of doubt you're really at. And also just ask where your doubts are coming from. The reason I say that is because if your doubt has turned into that sort of willful, sinful mistrust, then the answer is different than if you're in more of those stages of wrestling or struggling. If you're in that place of sin, you are going to be called to repentance. And let me just speak, even just reflecting on my own heart. What I mean by that is to say that there have been a few times in my life where I've experienced significant kind of intellectual doubts and been thinking and wrestling with these things. But as I've kind of probed into my heart, I've recognized that really the issue is that I'm like tired of obeying God or don't want to do what he's asking me to do. There have been other times that that's not true. And that's why I say this is hard because I'm not saying that you necessarily fit in that camp. But before we can talk about positively moving forward, the first thing you have to do is just look honestly and say, is it the case that this question I have is really the root thing going on? I remember a guy who I was sitting with who wanted to discuss all these objections to Christianity that he had who had been in the church, and he had been seeking out and reading some of these skeptical books and things, and we're having this conversation, and then it comes up about halfway through the conversation that he and his wife's marriage had fallen apart and he wanted out of it. And in that moment, I had this light come on that was just like, oh, we need to talk about that instead because these other things are all kind of connected to that. Now, I am not, again, saying that that everyone who wrestles with doubt is in that place, but before we can talk about other things, we need to just say, first, kind of check your heart, because all of us can, at times, really have that doubt more as a symptom of those deeper things. I think that's a really good gut impulse, is why the sudden change? Why am I feeling these these feelings of doubt? And then what you do with it, of course, is very significant as well. And one of the things that I would say is don't leave the church to figure it out. There's just this weird impulse that I think, I think it's not weird. I understand it. But there is an impulse that people have that once they experience doubt, they think I've got to be alone to figure this out. I've got to go somewhere else. I can't be in the church while I struggle with these things. And that's just nowhere found in Scripture. We are not in those camps or this camp. We are all on a continuum of faith and trust and discouragement and wrestling. And we're just a jumbled mess of different things all the time. And this is how God God comes to us in our sins, in our doubts, and redeems us and, and comforts us. And so I've seen this over and over again. People say, I just don't know if this is true anymore. I just don't know about what the Bible says about marriage or women or, you know, fill in your your struggle. And so then they say, so I need to go somewhere and figure it out first, and then I'll let you know. That's one of the worst things that you could do, because you're, what you're saying is, I need to figure out the truth without a context of truth. What the church provides is a place for wrestling people. Of course, if you're not in a church that is safe for wrestling, that's a different story. But what we are trying to create is a place where people have different levels of understanding, different experiences of, of faith, and that we can wrestle together with those things. So don't leave. I'll also add to that, this is especially true for intellectual doubts, is that this term isn't original to, to me, but it is important to doubt your doubts as well as doubting your faith. And what I mean by that is this. Um, what happens is you encounter some idea or some question or some hard thing, 
you know, you like read a book by Bart Ehrman and are like, oh, like maybe I can't trust the Bible or whatever. And you feel this doubt. And there's actually two bad responses. One is to not engage with that and try to just blindly have faith and ignore it because it will kind of stay there and niggle away and slowly chip away at your heart. But the other one is to say, oh, well, I read a book, so I've got it figured out now. And then to decide that clearly Christianity must not be true. And the right thing to do is say, okay, I'm feeling this doubt and it is appropriate for me to ask this question. Like in this case, can I trust the Bible? Can I believe that it's true? But it's also true that you need to doubt that doubt, which is to say you probably should go read another book or two that are trying to answer those objections or engage with that. You need to seek out the answers to your questions rather than simply letting the questions be a grounds on which you reject Christianity. That's right. I was, as a youth pastor for three years, I was often struck by the feeling that many kids had that the struggles that they had were very novel. So just in their tone of voices, they would say like, but how can this be? How can a good God allow suffering? Why hasn't anyone ever thought of this question before? (laughs) I know. It's like, oh man, here's the confessions of St. Augustine. I'll see you in a year and a half after you have read that. So it's like there is perennial human struggle and there are real things that people have wrestled with. And it doesn't fall neatly on intellectual versus not intellectual lines. There are smart people who are Christians and smart people who are not Christians. And so oftentimes there's an impulse towards, oh, this person said it really well or spoke really well. And so I'm now believing this. And I've seen people make those shifts just based on reading a few paragraphs of a book. And it's like, oh, now I understand it's different. And as you're saying, engaging with it on multiple different levels, especially with something so significant as what you're putting your trust in, it's it's very important. And I think what's often missed as well is that when you leave faith and you say, I'm, I just have my doubts now, and you do so quickly, you're often not accounting for all of what faith is. So you are saying, like, I've got this intellectual uncertainty. But you don't realize that all of your life is wrapped up into all these different aspects of faith. And so it's not just a challenge to your intellect. It's going to be a challenge to your whole life. And then lastly, I just want to name for especially those other kinds of doubts, the sort of wrestling in the heart and the sort of spiritual distance. But in some sense for all doubt, part of the thing that you need to do is to stay engaged with the means of grace. We talked about staying engaged with community, and that's actually one of the means of grace. But The means of grace is this label that we use for those ways that God graciously builds us up in our faith and relationship with him. Things like his word, things like prayer, things like worship, things like the sacraments. It is important, especially if you're in that kind of dry distance season, to stay engaged with those things. Because one of the struggles can be that if you're just, man, I just don't feel like God is there in prayer right now. If you therefore stop praying, 100% guarantee you are not going to feel the presence of God in your prayers again, because you're not offering them. The only way to have a hope of experiencing that is to stay engaged with those means of grace, even through the dry times. And you'll find that even though it might not be the sort of flood of stuff that you experience in the rich spiritual times, there is still a sort of trickle that sustains you from those things, even when you feel really distant from God. That's right. I often think that people don't have a return in mind. So they say, I'm going out on this limb, whether that be doubting intellectually or experience of God. It's like, I'm not sure anymore. I'm, I'm wrestling. 
and hopefully I'll return. But they often don't have a return, as you mentioned. There's no way for them to actually know again, if they're not engaging with who God is, to actually know whether that was right or not. There's, there is no return. Yeah, if you've got questions about God and your response is to remove from your life all the places that you might get the answers, you're not going to find the answers. I think that's a good discussion, Eric, and we're going to leave it there for now and switch over to what's good segment of the show where we talk about something that's good, true, beautiful that God has given to us. And so, Eric, your turn this week. What's good? All right, I'm going to recommend what is probably right now my favorite television series. I don't watch all that much TV, and I'm going to note up front that while it's not like Game of Thrones or something, this is a television show for adults. It has some violence and adult content in it, so be warned and let your conscience dictate. But The Expanse is a show that I have really, really been loving. The Expanse is a science fiction show that was on sci-fi and is now on Amazon. You can watch it all for free. Amazon bought it and just released the fourth season. And for a long time, I've kind of admired it as probably the best science fiction show on television. It's what you would call hard science fiction, meaning that it actually reflects the proper science part of it. Like when spaceships approach planets, they actually turn around and shoot their rockets towards the planets and things like that that only a geek like me would appreciate. But it's a show that really, over the first two seasons, transforms from just being a really good science fiction show, just being an excellent show. And by the third season, I feel like the the strength of writing and depth of characters really ends up telling these powerful stories about both individual people and their places within politics and clashes of culture and these tensions that really reflect things in our own world. When I'm watching a show, I'm definitely looking to see which direction the rockets are shooting on the approach of the landing. So thanks for thanks for clarifying that. That's going to make it that much better for me. These are important things. Like if guns don't have appropriate recoil or zero gravity isn't modeled right, you know, I mean, it, it's just a fundamental failure in good storytelling. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, there's a few things you could do that would really help us out. Most importantly, keep this conversation going. We would love to have so many people engaged with this. Grab someone, grab a a drink at your favorite spot, hang out and talk about this and let them know about this podcast. You can also find us online at all the places you would expect. Most recently, we are on Instagram at Simply Faithful Pod. That's the handle there for Instagram, Simply Faithful Pod. You can also find us on Twitter at Faithful Podcast, Simply Faithful on Facebook. And simplyfaithful.org is our website. In all of those places, we'd love to see you. If you share something on there that's especially interesting, we might even talk about it in an upcoming episode. We would also appreciate a rating on your podcast marketplace of choice. And most importantly, we would love it if you shared this podcast with some friends who might enjoy it. We're super grateful for those of you that we've seen already sharing it. And we would just love to have more faces around the table. That said, until next time, I'm Gray. I'm Eric, and this has been Simply Faithful. Simply Faithful.